waking up is not enough flourishing in the human space a podcast by Polly young eisendraft and michael berger when you peek into the cosmic unity of existence and feel the love and inspiration of awakening what happens next whether it's through meditation spiritual practice near-death experience ingesting a mind-altering substance or being born again you don't get a map for improving your messy life in this podcast Polly young eisendraft and michael berger draw on expertise in science psychology adult development psychedelics ndes dreams and buddhist practice in conversations about compassion resilience responsibility kindness and development after awakening you will learn how to chart a new path for flourishing in the human space in which waking up is important but not enough and growing up is never finished co-hosts Polly Young Eisendraft and Michael Berger bring different kinds of expertise. Polly is an author, psychologist, union analyst, longtime Zen practitioner, couple therapist, and founder of Dialogue Therapy and Real Dialogue. Michael Berger is an entrepreneur, an expert in psychedelics, a spiritual practitioner of Jewishness, a skeptic, a real dialogue specialist, and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary, Improbable Collapse, The Demolition of Our Republic. Polly and Mike will engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. what we can learn from awakening. In this episode, Mike and Polly considered, what is the takeaway from awakening? Does it matter how awakening is initiated? Our motivations? The method? What is driving us? Why are there so many differences in what individuals bring back and translate into relating to self and other? If we experience an ontological shock from awakening, whether we induce it or the awakening happens to us, as in NDEs, what allows us to make the most of it? What about differences in the ways we see the world? What makes waking up a positive, negative, or even harmful experience? How much? has to do with our personalities and how much with the ways we wake up. Hi, Mike. Hi, Polly. Wow, I think this is a very key subject in relation to awakening because I've noticed in my work in psychotherapy that people who wake up, no matter whether it's through one method or another, and I've had only a few people that have awakened through near-death experience, but often a small experience, not the large kind that Bruce Grayson reports about. But no matter how people wake up, the effects on their lives are different from each other. In other words, the idea that there is a single thing called waking up is, I think, you know, confusing and maybe even a distortion because these are always people waking up. There's not something else going on. It's like, you know, the issue of subjectivity and individual perception enters into everything that humans do. And so when it comes to waking up, I've always had a question myself, you know, does it matter how it happens? And I, of course, I know in the psychedelic research that set and setting matter a great deal from the research findings. But I mean, in a kind of big, bigger way, like, you know, if something happens to you, you're in a car accident and you have a near-death experience versus something that you instigate for yourself. You know, you learn mindfulness practice and go into a retreat on the jhanas 
that's different from say taking a psychedelic substance but you know the differences between people's experiences affected by how the experience happens to them affected by their motivations affected by what happens after they bring it back i mean i think these are big questions and i, I don't think we're going to answer the questions but i think we're going to talk about some of our experiences and the answers. So what are your thoughts uh, just right now? I find it interesting that I seem to make certain assumptions when I come across people and that we share a certain level of reality. And yet in these awakenings, the vast differences in how and what people experience in awakening challenges this notion that I have that we all share a certain worldview. So in one sense, there are so many distinct experiences. And then, as you brought up, whether this is chosen or whether it happens to us impacts the quality and character of that awakening and what we bring back and how we integrate it in our lives varies so much depending on our background, our cultural context, our expectations, our motivations, our beliefs, and our values. So in one sense, these experiences have a tendency to shift those beliefs, values, in a way that we can't anticipate because we each bring our own experience, our own personal experience, into that experience of awakening and back into the world. Yeah, and as you're sort of implying there, that's that's going on all the time with all of our experiences. In other words, the the idea that you and I are seeing the same thing, hearing the same thing, noticing the same kinds of things in our subjectivity, in the world that we call the world around us, that idea is really pretty much um belied or, or or disproven by current cognitive science you know it's it's like taking donald hoffman for example or umberto maturana we're constructing a perceptual world that we experience and so whatever our experience is each one of us is having a first person experience of it whether it's a near death experience whether it's a psychedelic experience whether it's the experience of falling, looking at the tree, uh, you know, having indigestion. There's a tendency in philosophy to believe that it's only these certain kinds of experiences that are called qualia that are things like opinions, desires, beliefs, that those are the ones that are very subjective. But, you know, we know from now a lot of cognitive science as well as Buddhist science, the Tibetans particularly have made very scientific studies, not only the Tibetans, but they're known for it, of, of the way perceptions work. And so we know that we're not just perceiving things, we're constructing, we're participating in the creation of what we're perceiving. And of course that goes for any perception as long as we're embodied, as I'm embodied as Polly, I'm having Polly's perceptions. You're embodied as Mike, you're having Mike's perceptions. So you don't stop having those perceptions until your embodiment is gone, you know, until you're dead. And so whether you're having your near-death experience or you're having your psychedelic, it's still Mike, it's still Mike, it's still Polly. And then bringing that back there's a tendency, and here's where I feel the distinction about motivation, maybe also desire, makes a difference. There's a tendency to say, I did that. I made that happen. Or even I had that experience. And that tendency, we could call that ego if we wanted, because that's the term that gets used. We could call it the default mode network. We could call it really just being human, uh, you know, self-consciousness. That sense, that's where 
I believe a lot of these differences enter in. I did that. I remember this. I made this happen. I had this encounter. Who's the I? And, and how is that I limited? And how is that I different from somebody else's I? And here, I'm not saying E-Y-E-I. I'm saying I, the ego type of I. So I want to talk about that especially because we know and I, you know you know much more about the psychedelic research but from the near-death experience we know there are some people that have a negative experience they're in the minority of people who report near-death experience but they have reported negative experiences and of course I know more about meditation I know deep meditational states Zen meditation, and to some extent, even simple mindfulness retreats have had people collapse from very negative experiences. So there are people that have negative experiences in their contact with what you call oneness or breaking through, awakening. And then, of course, there are positive experiences, which is what people tend to be seeking. And there aren't many neutral ones that are reported, you know, like you have... (laughs) a kind of a so-so afternoon. You generally don't hear about a so-so, well, it wasn't much of anything kind of awakening experience. Although there probably are. I just haven't heard about them. So I've heard more about the positive and the negative. And I am interested in what leads one way or the other. And then also what is the long-term takeaway and you know, and how it is affected by the I of that person. So tell me what your thoughts are on this. Well, I want to piggyback on something you said about our experience, our first person experience. Each act of perception is a creative act. We take it for granted that we share a certain level of reality. And yet at the individual level, our perceptions are incredibly different and varied which is one of the reasons why we need others in order to really develop and get a sense of who I am. Who I am may be different depending on my company, depending on my mood, going back to motivation and desires. What is it that I'm looking for? But each act of perception is a quite radical creative act which I don't think many of us have in our conscious awareness. We take for granted that we're experiencing or perceiving something in the world or in the social world, and that it has a certain type of character that we experience as if we're seeing an objective reality. And yet, when we begin to compare our experiences of even just having a basic conversation about things we assume to be facts, when we dig a little bit deeper in our conversations, we may find that we have radically different perceptions of the same word, even, that we bring our history, our biography, the cultural context in which we were raised. Geography and time are important as well. (laughs) You know, we have a cohort that we're born into, And depending on the randomness of where and when we come into being, that begins to shape those motivations, those desires, and those beliefs through which we filter our perceptions. And our perceptions are filtered. That is the the radical act of creative interpretation. But it's usually going on at a level beneath our conscious awareness. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I can't tell you, how many times in working in dialogue therapy with a couple, I hear people say, well, what do you mean by the word? You know, what, you know, you're using this word. What do you mean by this word? And often it's an ordinary word. And of course, you know, the reason why we, you and I practice real dialogue and the reason we help other people learn the skills is that the conflict that humans get into about what's true and real can become very hostile very quickly. And of course, it often seems as though there's only one truth 
like, you know, that one side has to win. And there are many, many issues right now that are going on in our collective existence. You know, you could call it the collective consciousness or whatever that are very, very conflictual and lead to polarization easily. Many of those we call them politics, but really they are, as you said, different perceptions, but without care and without consideration, people can disregard someone else's reality in a way that's insulting, humiliating, dismissive. And then I think on top of all of that, which is ordinary human stuff, when it comes to oneness, when it comes to awakening, and here we can get into the issues of the knowledge of God or the knowledge of the source or the way somebody articulates what they take to be the spirit or the divine. When we get into those topics, humans can quickly line up on one side or another and feel as though the truth is on their side entirely. So, you know, it's like coming into the domain of awakening and talking about it from our own experiences is honestly a crapshoot because it is not easy at all to convey, first of all, what it is that one experienced. And then on the other hand, if you're going to try to compare it to somebody else's experience or, and, and, you know, humans do that all the time. They're comparing everything and they're really competitive and really self-promoting by nature again, you know, so you get into this awakening uh, kind of conversation and it's even more critical that, that there's a slowing down and a modesty and a questioning and a paraphrasing you know, of what a person is saying, because if it's hard for us to talk about, say, you know, a political position or gender or sexuality, it's much harder to talk about the divine or the source or God and have that conversation be humanized, humane you know, engaged, curious, compassionate. I think, you know, in trying to talk about the takeaway from awakening and what we can learn, it's like, it's extremely important to be careful and to also recognize that the I or the ego or the default mode network, that plays a big role in the way things are reported and the way understandings are embraced. And I know in an earlier podcast, you and I talked a little bit about the narcissism that can be involved in awakening, that, that individuals identify with being somehow awakened or, or knowing more than others know. And then it, that can turn into an us and them kind of thing really easily. I do think that the takeaway or what we learned interacts strongly with who we are. And as you said, who we are is a cohort. It's, it's also a situation, but also as you and I will be exploring it, it's, it's also a stage of development for adults that adults, just because they're chronologically over 25 are not all having the same kind of experience, perception, understanding of language, understanding of oneness, any, you know, those kinds of things. But on the other hand, it's not altogether random either. It's not like everybody's just out there having a random experience that is completely individual. I, I want to hear what you want to add next, but I, I would like to focus it, to focus our conversation then a little bit on the positive, the negative, and the harmful in the takeaway from awakening. So in semantics, there's a term for these problems in communication where noise gets into the signal or into the message. And one of my experiences through learning and using real dialogue is that when I slow down 
and I listen and I'm curious, I can ask for clarification to try to make sure that the message I'm trying to interpret is accurate. So for example, and here's an example. If I would say to you, I love fish, there are so many different ways that you would interpret it based on your own lived experience. You might think Mike likes to take care of fish and keeps them in an aquarium. Whereas another person may hear that and say, well, I also like flounder. It's delicious. And so. And then someone from Vermont would say, oh, I, I listen to them all the time. I follow fish. <laughs> yes. Yes. I follow, I follow fish. And so those kinds of noise that get into our signals, into our messaging is further complicated by the fact that we're emotional. So this goes back to the whole notion of what is the takeaway? If I believe that I've experienced something unique in an awakening, I may come back and think I'm special or privileged and certain rules don't apply to me. And now I quote, know something that others don't. And again, depending on my personality, I may lord that over others as opposed to coming back and being humbled by the experience. So the positive and the negative are again these acts of radical creativity and how we interpret the experience, how we bring it back, and then how we bring it into our lives. So it's really, again, any conversations about these aspects of consciousness are slippery. These also, I, I believe in, in a way this is connected to our boundaries. Where are our boundaries with each other? So if we have that experience of oneness and we come back, it's really difficult to walk through the world without any boundaries, without any separation. I mean, these are, these are some of the paradoxical aspects to, I think, the conversation, which we will unwrap and unravel as we continue in the discussion, especially when you introduce stage theory. Right, uh, yes. I mean, because you're implying things like even in saying walk around without boundaries, I would say it depends on what you mean by boundaries, you know, and you had mentioned in an earlier podcast that, you know, sometimes and perhaps even often, and at least I know that this happens, uh, both in the meditative world and also in the near-death experience, that people who have had these experiences feel alienated from other people. They feel as though others don't recognize and can't make use of. And you even commented, you know, that then it's possible that you feel almost like sorry for or compassionate for others who don't know these things that you now know. But still, that's standing in some ways above the others saying, oh, poor thing, you didn't have this experience that I had. And so this, this attitude of I have had this experience or even I am enlightened or I am awake, that attitude plays heavily into the experience's takeaway or you know what you're going to do with it and i think that probably at least some of that attitude is connected with the window that you look through when you look at others and yourself and so we'll be calling that in future podcasts ego development it can be called self-development but it's it's let's say a paradigm that each each person, every human being has a window, a paradigm, a lens through which they, they see, experience, hear, feel, everything. And even though these are highly individual, they're not entirely random as it turns out. And you know, on many levels, uh, that's not fair. And most people would say, but it's not fair that some people might have a more complex view or a complex encounter with their experience that other people have. No, it's not fair. In fact, I don't know what is fair. And I haven't really encountered any kind of fairness in life except my children's arguments with each other about who got more M&Ms than somebody else. So you can make that sort of fair. 
you know, you with when you're a child and you have siblings and you can count how many times you got this or that, and the parent can say, let's be fair about that. It looks like something's happening that is fairness, but fairness, I just would love to get rid of the concept. And because as you and I go on to talk about stages of development, it will seem radically unfair that humans are, in addition to all the other inequalities, there's this one, that the way we make sense of reality is different and it falls along a continuum of development and it's not fair. So, you know, I'm, I'm introducing this I, ego thing because I'm anticipating future episodes, but I, I also want to go back to the issue of how one feels. And because I have, I'm gonna talk about myself now, I have had different awakenings, different kinds of awakenings at different points in my lifespan and made very different conclusions. I would say, as I look back now over awakenings I had when I was a child, then, you know, in my, my first uh, childbirth experience, I, I had an ectopic pregnancy and there I just had the fear of death. I didn't experience it because I had surgery and I, you know, somebody, I was like 23, I guess. And, you know, there was a doctor saying you could die any moment. Uh, that was the first time anyone had said that to me and I fainted because I was so terrified. And then the next time I experienced birth, well, I had a 10 pound baby. And there I experienced 14 hours of labor and it, I had a near death experience. I experienced the light at the end of the tunnel. And I wasn't sure if it was me being born, if I was the baby being born, or if I was the mother dying because I knew that the, the light meant that I could be dying. That experience was my first deep awakening and I was a Zen practitioner by then, so I could keep track of it. I was, I was able to keep track of my experience in labor, even though I had no painkillers and I had no respite from the contractions, most of which were five minutes long with a half minute in between, I was told later. So that experience was an extreme physical experience. It had many, many components. I didn't understand it. Now, retrospectively, and over a long period of time, I understand it. I, in other words, I've incorporated it, integrated it on many levels. But that happened to me. Later, I had experiences in meditating where parts of my body flew away, where parts disappeared. I was disembodied, not ever entirely, but only partly. And then when that happened to me, because it was very, very visceral, and very much uh, anxiety provoking when it first started happening. I, that I also took a very long time to integrate and make sense of. And when it was happening to me and when I talked to my teacher about it, it was pretty negative. I, I was not pleasurable uh, because I was anxious and it was, it was sort of lending, lending itself to some psychotic experiences that I'd had psychotic experiences. And so I wasn't sure whether I was becoming psychotic in these deep meditative states or if I was actually being liberated. I mean, I know now that I wasn't becoming psychotic, but I didn't know then. And so that's taken, again, a long time to integrate, to, to, for me, to make sense of it. And I'm going to say, make sense of it phenomenologically, psychologically, and karmically. In other words, about who I am, that I should be having these experiences even. And so as I do that, I'm, I'm very, very aware that I didn't do any of those things, even the meditative things. I was encountering something that I was unaware of previously, and that other force, I'm going to call it, you know, I could call it God, but I, I, I think the absolute is, is a good word for it. I was encountering the absolute as an individual and the effects that, that the absolute was having on me were not things that I was doing. They were being essentially done to me or it wasn't like happening to me. It was like I was engaging with it. And, and gradually I have come to see that I'm always engaging with this absolute. I am always engaging with this oneness. In other words, the poly aspect is pretty small. 
it, it's it's pretty mm, it's not incidental because I have to deliver, but there's a much bigger aspect that's coming from this absolute or this God or this thing I'm participating in, but not doing. And so in the long run, and I could give other examples of awakening, but I wanted to give those just sort of as starters, all of the awakenings that I've had kind of sum up for me as encounters with the absolute. The I part of it has changed over time because the, the four-year-old who was levitating by spinning around or the 23-year-old who was having, you know, feeling like, oh my God, I'm going to die because I, I got this ectopic pregnancy or the 24-year-old, 25-year-old who was giving birth. All of those, I was, I would say, more naive than I am now about what was happening. So I'm giving these examples just to say, this has been my experience. I would like to hear yours, but I think the I plays a big role. Absolutely, the I plays a big role. And part of what I'm hearing, or my interpretation, is that through these awakenings, this self-identity that we refer to as ego or I expands. It, it can, through these experiences, have a much greater overlap with what you described as, I would use the term, maybe the ground of being, that our sense of self is this very, very small aspect or reflection of something much larger with which in our normal waking consciousness, we may not be in touch with. It may be invisible to us. So we have an awakening. We have this experience that takes us outside of our consensus reality, our sense of self and where we fit and how we work in the world. I'm just going to say, Mike, that, that this sense of self and this... So my sense of self has actually gotten smaller. I mean... And in the sense that I realized that I need to be in touch with this source or this absolute or whatever in order to feel confident. I don't feel confident by being poly. Those things that are associated with poly, I could call my boundaries. So the very thing that we were talking about, you know, but they, my boundaries have actually dissolved more. Like I have more confidence that poly will be okay as long as poly is in touch with this other source that is providing a lot that I say, a lot that I do. But I have to say that the road from point A to point wherever I am now, S or T or whatever in the alphabet, I'm not at Z yet, I know that, but that, that is a long road. It's a long road, it's taken a lot of integration, but I think that the, idea of who is awakening and what it is that awakening is changes along the way a lot on this long road, but also that part of the risk is to believe that you are doing that or that one is doing it as a, as a little teeny tiny human that somehow, you know, I am awakened or I am I mean, the Buddha did say when he was born, you know, I am the world honored one, but he didn't mean like I, <laughs> you know, he meant like, I'm bringing this to you. I'm bringing to you all in this world, this oneness. So, you know, it's that I thing that is a problem, but it's also a necessity. From that perspective, we can now talk about some of these great challenges that arise during this process and how do we navigate them? So one possible challenge is our resistance to change, that humbling of being connected to something or a part of something so much beyond what we can live in. Or what I'm hearing is this growth or living into this much broader sense of connection. This challenge is there are times where I'll, I'll feel threatened or uncomfortable with what I'm witnessing in this awakening, especially when I come back into the everyday world that I live in. So it can, it can feel threatening. It can feel challenging. And again, especially if I don't feel like I'm being seen or heard by living into this, especially when others may not even be aware of 
this broader or larger context within which we live. So bringing compassion and patience into this as we stumble through this process. And I think being comfortable with sitting with the discomfort is part of the process. It also brings up the awakening brings up challenging emotions and sometimes truths that it may take a while to integrate and to be able to accept with kindness and compassion, especially again, bringing this back into a world where we're in a way almost grasping to, to hold on to something solid in the sense of self, but that grasping itself can be a source of discomfort and challenge. And so from what I hear you say, in different places or stages of your development, awakenings feel and look different. What you bring back and how you integrate that into this larger sense of self. So in, in essence, if I understood what you were saying, that sense of polyness in a, in a way shrinks and what is more than your polyness expands into something much broader. So maybe you take things less personally, right? And part of this process is also living in the knowledge of our impermanence. Yes. That all of this is subject to change and I'm not in control. So often there's a struggle for control or the perception, as you pointed out, I made this happen. Did I make this happen? So going back to the original distinction between an awakening that, quote, happens to us versus an awakening that we choose to participate in through action, there does seem to be a qualitative difference. I think I think that there certainly can be. I think probably there is, but I don't know the research on it, so I can't say across the board. I would say for me, you know, things happened to me in the beginning, and sometimes I took the meaning uh, with a lot of fear, but sometimes not. But I think, you know, the very first couple of big things that happened in my adult life were connected with death. And so the issue of death, like that I know I will die and that getting comfortable with that knowledge will automatically, if, if that comfort uh, happens in the way that I would say is the sort of correct way or the most compassionate way for humans, that will reduce the fear of death and the, and the interest in the dying process itself and the recognition that life and death are always together which I got a big dose of early in my adult life, the recognition that, you know, getting pregnant, I was going to die from that at first, but then having a baby, maybe I was dying from that. And so that idea that birth and death are connected was really being delivered to me. I didn't, I didn't study it, it came to me. So the thing about control plays a role in all of this. And yes, I think that instigating a oneness experience, whether you take a substance or you activate it spiritually or you diligently practice for it, like I did through meditation and other people do that too. All of those things do tend to give the impression that you're doing it, which I think is a false impression or a misleading impression. And then that can lead to a takeaway that increases narcissism. You know, that the takeaways, like I'm different from other people, I've had this experience and now how can I talk to others about it or they haven't had it. And so what can I do about that? That is, I think, a mistake, but I think it's a mistake commonly made. So, you know, it's somewhat on the path of, of growing and developing, like you said, with compassion and kindness that you don't get everything right about anything as a human. And so, you know, the, the beginning part of perhaps the takeaway is that try not to make it harmful. I mean, the most harmful experiences that we know about in the near-death ex near experiences are experiences where people were attempting suicide. So they were attempting to take their own lives. In other words, that's an ultimate kind of control thing. You know, like I don't like my life. I don't feel it's going the way that 
I believe it should go. So I'm going to take my life myself. I'm not going to wait for the natural process of dying. And that has led to harmful near-death experience, near-death experiences where people get very afraid. They feel like they're in hell or that they're in something that's suffering. In those experiences, as they're reported, all they need to do is to change their attitude. They just need to say, I need some help here. Or, you know, I, I don't want to do it this way. And the help comes immediately. So again, that help being available is often available to everyone, but they don't lose their sense that they're doing the thing. That, in other words, it's the loss of control that brings the help. You know, you can't go like, I want some help here, but I want it my way. You just have to go like, I want some help here and then see what arises. So that I would say is one thing to reduce the harm and the negativity, to recognize help is available and that you have to have the sense to some extent that you give over or are receptive to the oneness, the God, absolute, whatever it is, you wanna call the name of the source that you have to give over to that to get the help is, is part of the issue of the takeaway around harmful or not harmful. At least that's the way I would put it. I don't know in psychedelics if there's a comparable sort of thing as in near-death experience or meditation. There certainly is. I, I think, I, for one, I want to just touch on some of the points you made in terms of our cultural context within which our awakening takes place. So much of what you described as perhaps some of the possible negative or harmful consequences may be connected to, in our culture, the way we view the role of suffering in our lives. In our culture, We've been taught to avoid suffering at all costs. So we run from that, which is, I think, an inherent part of the awakening experience is a perspective on attachment and suffering and that trying, trying to do, which is another aspect of our culture. We're very goal-oriented. So in this awakening experience, we may experience this paradox of letting go within a cultural context where we're taught or we've learned that we need to strive and struggle and that our our existence very attached to this drive to quote make something happen and yet when you have one of the awakening experiences and you bring it back whether it is through psychedelics or meditation or whatever practice how do you integrate this sense of deep interconnectedness the awareness in the moment of impermanence. So perhaps one of the shifts is to be in the moment, to live in the now and trying to bring that back. That's one of the takeaways. Being present with each other is a takeaway in, in that awakened state, especially if we've had this oneness experience where we're, we're in this uh, almost boundless state of awareness there's almost like an uh, infinite presence that we experience. And then when we come back into a culture that doesn't necessarily value these experiences, or they even run counter to what's been ingrained in us culturally, we may also experience a shift in how we perceive our suffering, that in, in, in awakening, bringing it back, can, we can bring back this sense of freedom from suffering, there's also an aspect of being more authentic and connected with what, I don't like the word, but what is at our essence or core, that divine or expanded self. And then another takeaway is by integrating this and bringing it back and walking in the world, perhaps we're gaining a deeper sense of wisdom and understanding about the nature of life my connection with you and everything else with the greater reality. So to me, those would be some of the takeaways from these expanded states. And there are always pitfalls in awakening. There are these subtle traps, which I know we're going to get into. Right. Well, I mean, I think that the not so subtle traps do have to do with ego 
narcissism, inflation, the sense that somehow one is different from others because one has had these experiences. And of course, you know, they've changed the phenomenology of one's own experience. I think that what I feel we will be able to talk about more fluently, perhaps once we're able to talk about stage theory, is the kinds of questions or the kinds of takeaways that individuals may bring from awakenings given their own stage of development. Because again, this idea, I'm gonna use an analogy that the great neuroscientist Wilder Penfield, who was a, a neurosurgeon as well as a neuroscientist at McGill University in the 20th century. And he would do these surgeries on stage uh, with an audience, brain surgeries, where he'd remove the skull of a person and then he would stimulate because he was doing the surgery to cure epilepsy and not to cure, but to overcome certain aspects of epilepsy in the patient. He'd stimulate various parts of the brain and the person was conscious. And so they could talk to him. He said that he never could ever find agency in the brain. In other words, if he stimulated, let's say the response of making your right arm move, and he said to the person, what happened? The person would say, you made my arm move. They wouldn't say, I moved my arm. And this happened repeatedly. He would stimulate some kind of uh, sense experience, like a desire, a taste. And the person would say, you made me do this, not I did this. And so I think that if we use this analogy, that what I feel is a good takeaway from awakening is to begin to recognize, did you do that? Or let's just say God here. Did God do that through you? You know, is that something that you've invented or created? Or was that created through you, through participating in this source or absolute, which wasn't a, wasn't a little poly creation? It wasn't a poly thing. It was a bigger thing. So, you know, the, did I move my arm or did essentially God move my arm? That's just, I'm using that metaphorically, you know, just as an analogy. But I think that being able to bring back from an awakening, recognizing that this oneness, you participate in it, but you're not controlling it. And, and it's, not, it's not a Michael thing or a poly thing. It's not a little ego thing. It's something that is getting revealed to you in the experience so that you can then begin to question, like essentially who is running your show? You know, is it your ego? Are you always trying to control things? Are you always anxious? Are you always afraid? Are you always afraid of outcomes? Or are you tapping into something that allows you to feel confident because you know you don't control and because things are impermanent and because you will die? All of those things are aspects of you participating in this oneness, in this source, and you can relax because you don't have to control that. So that's the way I would say, if that, if the takeaway can lean towards who, who is doing this, you know, and what am I doing at this moment? Am I participating in something or am I inventing something all of my own that I came up with because of the you know, being that I am. I, I think that question is, is a good question that to take that away from awakening instead of, you know, how can I now in all of my wisdom be in touch with all these little people who haven't ever experienced this, you know, that's, which I, I feel can happen to people. They can feel alienated. Having been awakened, then feel like, well, I can't talk to people about this. Well, maybe not at that particular moment, but maybe there's something bigger going on that's not, you know, about your ego. So anyway, that's where I kind of want to leave it. I do you have something you want to add before we wrap up here? Yeah, two. Th I I just want to jump back because I think it connects with what you're saying is this paradox of letting go. It seems as we go through or have an awakening. As we have an awakening, there is a 
process we go through of letting go of the things that we may have been attached to, our desires, and as you pointed out, our need to control. I think bringing back the takeaway or a takeaway from awakening is a diminishing of the need or desire to feel like I have to control outcomes or that I'm in control of anything. And there's a counterintuitive aspect of this, whereas we let go of the need or desire to control, we may experience or I may experience a really profound sense of freedom. And then another takeaway for me is how fluid our sense of identity is. So we, we, I'm going into the experience, I may experience myself as a kind of fixed entity or a noun. There's something here tangible. I have this sense of self. I may have a sense of self-importance, but I have a fixed idea perhaps of who I am based on my history and the roles in society and relationships and the things I, I tell myself in my internal narrative, my self-concept. And yet through awakening, I come to experience myself as more fluid, as more changing in the nature of my identity. As, and more, it, not, as more sort of not self, not my God. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and being comfortable or at peace with not necessarily being in control. And I do believe this is a, a bit of a leap back to the conversation that you brought up about fairness. Fairness and justice are human concepts I impose on my experience. There is no objective fairness in the world. And to believe that the world is supposed to be is a story I tell myself. The world is supposed to be fair. It's supposed to be just. So in awakenings, it's as if we begin or we have the potential to shed these fixed ways of experiencing ourselves and of letting go and getting more into the flow of life and not feeling as separate, feeling that connection, but feeling it in a different way that we experience ourselves. I think that's perfect. I think this is a great place to end this. Thank you for doing this, this episode. It's, it's been an interesting kind of ride through it and I look forward to our further conversation. So thank you, Michael. I too enjoy our conversation and I look forward to our next episode. Thank you for listening to Waking Up Is Not Enough. To explore further, go to www.realdialogue.com, where you can download our free app and become a part of our online community. Purchase any course in the Real Dialogue app, and you'll receive an email invitation to our monthly conversation, where Polly and Mike hold an Ask Me Anything monthly on Tuesdays. Waking Up Is Not Enough is produced by Chris Coltrane and is available on all major podcast channels.